today, we're going to be doing part two of a message we started last week called The Power of Peace. Uh, uh, I obviously wasn't that offensive last week, um, so I had some really great feedback after last week, me- week's, week's message. Um, probably my favorite one was um, from someone who was new, uh, and it was, you know, I heard you don't hold back, but dang. <laughs> I thought, well, you know what? That pretty much sums up the whole thing. That was, that was really great. Um, but um, I've, I really felt like this is, this is an important topic, especially with what's going on in, uh, in, our, in our world and honestly even in our community, which I'll touch on very briefly a little later. Whoops. Um, so, <coughs> excuse me. We began last week by talking about the relational aspect of peace. Um, in the message I titled, Some Things Are Worth Fighting For. Um, and one of the things we looked at was the Hebrew word for peace, which is shalom. And uh, just very quickly breaking that down, the word shalom essentially means the destruction of the authority that has bound you to chaos and confusion. And that's that uh, the idea of peace is not a, a conflictless life. It is a life of godly conflict. Go- conflict can be godly. We can actually come to a godly conclusion in conflict. When people say, you know, God's always talking about peace and, and everything, but he sends Israel to, you know, into the land and tells them to wipe out, wipe out all the, all the inhabitants. Yep. And they didn't. And guess what they never found? Peace. Because they did not handle the conflict in a godly way. And when we talk about conflict, we talk about disagreement, we're talking about, you know, having difficulties. It's not a matter of malice or hatred or anything. Conflict is a simple reality of life. Conflict happens, period, all the time. Even people who struggle with the reality, and I don't know if I, I, I'm just struggling with this idea of whether or not conflict really should happen or not. That is a conflict. In your mind, you're struggling with it. You have to deal with that in a, in a godly manner. And when we're talking about relationships, when we're talking about friendships, we're talking about the nature of the church. We have to learn how to approach conflict confidently. Don't you hate those people that you, you know you, you need to go talk to them, you need to have that difficult conversation, and you're, <sighs> you need to take some nitroglycerin tablets with you because you're about to have a heart attack, and you sit down, and they're calm as a cucumber. Don't you love to hate those people? Or hate that you have to love those people? You know? Because you're a wreck... And they're fine. That's a confidence issue. That's someone who knows how to handle themselves in that situation and someone who's not sure if they can handle themselves in that situation. That's the difference there. And unfortunately, people who end up dealing with a lot of conflict tend to be okay in those situations because they've just dealt with it. It's not an easy thing to do to learn how to, how to exist in conflict. Let me... Help you with something. There's, there's a, there's a lot going on in our world, and I've heard this a lot from parents, and I don't talk a lot about do this and don't do that with your kids, because I don't have kids, but there is a reality. I've hired a lot of people over the years, and I've hired a lot of kids over the years. I've fired a lot of kids. I've hired, I've fired a whole lot more kids than I've been, than I've, than I've had adults, and there's a reason for that. Working in the restaurant industry, you end up with these people who have no idea how to handle real life. Because people, I don't know if you realize this, but in the service industry, when people come into your retail store or into your restaurant, sometimes they're wonderful people, but oftentimes they ain't. Especially when they're convinced they know how to cook your menu item better than you do. 
And they can be, you can see people in the back, they're crying. You got waitresses in the back, they're sobbing like crazy. What happened? They told me to move. Jesus do love me. <laughs> he was me. Really? Because a lot of these young kids have no idea how to handle actual criticism. And they don't know how to handle a learning situation where they have the, op- the opportunity to grow. Right? They need to learn how to give and receive criticism, preferably without offending others or getting offended themselves. And that's an art. There's a real reality of that. <coughs> Excuse me. I actually am feeling fine. This stupid cough just hangs on. There's a lot of people who go through life Convinced they can never say anything critical to anyone about anything. Because if they do, it's going gonna, it's gonna to go wrong. It's going to mess it up. They're going to ruin a relationship. Something's going to happen. And so by not confronting something, they think they're finding peace. But in reality, you're, you're not. You're actually just settling yourself with a long-lasting conflict that isn't going anywhere. And we forget some of the advice that Paul gave to Timothy. For God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and of self-discipline. Of power, love, and self-discipline. And that power, love, and self-discipline is found in the knowledge, understanding, and application of God's word. When you approach someone in a godly way where you're actually caring about them, you can say very difficult things because you're approaching them in the right way. You don't have to worry about it because you're not responsible for their response. (laughs) You're responsible for your side of it, not theirs. Most of the time, you think about this, we look at suffering for the gospel as going into the world and being persecuted for bringing the gospel message to the deep, dark places of the planet. But I got news for you. There is much reality in the interrelational issues as there is in going to deepest, darkest Africa. That's not where I'm going, by the way. Because I'm a meal in places like that. No. See... Because when we confront someone, we're confronting with them because they're, they've stepped out of line with God. And we're trying to help them, not criticize them, not beat them down, not let them know how, how inefficient they are or uh, how, how incapable they are, they are and how righteous we are. That's not what we're doing. We're trying to help them get back into a place of God. We're trying to redeem that person back. That's what we're trying to do. So we're still standing for the gospel message, and we still may get beaten up for it. Okay. This is part of life. Deal with it. <laughs> You're going to walk in the love and the acceptance and the forgiveness of Christ. He's asked us to stand for him. And sometimes that means standing for him in front of another believer, trying to help bring them back to a place of safety and security and sanctity. Life is a series of challenges. And when you've got iron sharpening iron, sparks fly. It's just the way it works. <clears throat> but the goal is still, can still be righteous. We need each other if we're going to walk through those challenges with any degree of success and, more importantly, of peace. And that means we're going to have to deal with difficulties. And peace is not only found when we handle those difficulties in a godly manner. If we want God's blessing and God's peace in those moments, we have to handle them in his way. And for a bunch of overly emotional, opinionated humans, this can be very difficult. Have you ever known anybody who is more opinionated than they should be? 
I mean, you're listening to one right now, but it's, but I mean, other than obviously me. Now today, what we're going to do is we're going to look on the other side of this conflict coin. Last week, we talked about the relational side, uh, and today we're going to be looking at a slightly different side of it. And I've titled the message today, We Give What We Receive. And no, this is not a message about tithing, but the principle is kind of the same. We reap what we sow. And the basic idea is that God does not give us what we, re- re- we, what we refuse to give others. God is not going to hand you something that you will refuse to hand to somebody else. It's not how God works. It's not all about you. And part of the reason I found that we struggle is that we refuse to let, uh, to let others have what we want God to provide for us. And mostly that comes down to one simple thing, forgiveness. Forgiveness. We want it. We crave it. But we tend to withhold it. Sometimes even unconsciously. So I want to share a couple things with you. First part of this today is that we are all desirable in God's eyes. And that he desires that we would not only come to him, we would continually come to him. You don't come to God once. You don't come to the altar once, say a prayer, get up, your life's good, you can go do whatever you want for the rest of your life. That is not what we're supposed to do. We daily take up our cross and follow him. We wake up in the morning, we understand the burden that's been placed on our life as a Christian, we take it up gladly and we follow God throughout the day. That's the idea. That we would come to him and continue to come to him. And we're going to, be, we're going to still be in Matthew 18, <clears throat> like we were last week. We're going to talk about the sections around what we talked about last week. So if you start in verse 12, it reads like this. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, what will he do? Uh, won't, uh, won't he leave the 99 others and, uh, on the hills and go out and search for the one that is lost? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he will rejoice over it more than over the 99 uh, that didn't wander away. And in the same way, it is not, uh, excuse me, it is not my heavenly father's will that even one of these little sheep should perish. Now, I want you to notice something. The idea of the shepherd leaving the 99 tells us about the individual value that God places on you. Notice it didn't say, when one sheep wandered away and, and the shepherd noticed that he didn't call out to the other, other shepherds and say, was that the annoying one? Was that that mouthy one? Was that the one that, you know, the, you know what, let it die. I'm so sick of having to go get this stupid sheep just if you know if you don't let it die we're going to eat it when i find it you notice he didn't say that all all the shepherd knew was that one was gone and he needed to go find it that see just being gone was enough to bring the shepherd into the right frame of mind i need to find my sheep it doesn't matter how dumb that sheep is you remember, you remember throughout the Bible, we're described as sheep. We're not described as highly intelligent beings, okay? We're described because we do dumb things pretty constantly. And that's just the way it works. Some of you are thinking, nah, not me. <laughs> you. <coughs> Excuse me. One of them was lost, so he needed to go find it. Just under that section, we have the part we looked at last week, dealing with conflict between believers. We know that even when dealing with an offense or a sin or transgression, God's plan is to redeem them back to himself, not to discipline them out of the church. 
We talked about this last week. Starting in verse 15, it says, If another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses it, you have won that person back. The rest of it is just a continuation on that goal. There's no other goal in this, con- <coughs> in this conversation. Wow, I really need to drink of water. The goal is always the same, to win the person back. That's why we do this in God's way, to win the person back. Now you think about this. If you find yourself thinking about someone in the church, wishing that they would just go somewhere else, and yes, this does happen. Over the last 14 years, uh, at, at this January, uh, January, was it January 10th or something like that? Uh, this, this coming January, I'll be 14 years that I've been the pastor of this church. That's crazy. That doesn't seem right. Something about that seems wrong. Like somehow there's a large gap of time that's missing. Like somehow the twilight zone happened and now here we are. It's really strange. Because people who've been pastoring this long get, are, are people who are getting older. Yeah, we'll discuss that another time. But over the last 14 years, I can tell you that every couple of years, I've been asked by someone in the church if I would ask someone to go somewhere else. See, you're all like, no way, because it was you. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) At least every two years, this this happens. Somehow, that conversation. And it's usually because there's friction going on and that person has it in their head the church would be so much happier (laughs) if this person would just no and that's not how this works that's not how god works my answer to them is always the same no no pick a card (gasps) no it says no no now here's the thing if that's you If you've ever done that or even thought that, the first person that needs to be dealt with is you. Because you've judged your brother and sister unworthy of being in the house of God while you're there. See, they can be in the house of God as long as it's not where you are. Because somehow you are more elevated and you're messing with their spiritual vibe, man. You bring bad juju. You believe that you're more valuable in the house of the Lord where you are than they are. And chances are that God brought them to that place so that they can overcome an issue in their life. Uh, And God has probably brought brought them into your life so that you can overcome an issue in yours. And that's why that relationship, that's why that connection somewhere is there. Now, there is a temptation that we all deal with. (coughs) And I think this section highlights it. Some people can see it, others cannot. But the temptation is to value ourselves in the eyes of God, to value our own forgiveness, our own security, and our own righteousness over that of another. I am so much more valuable to God than they are. Look at the righteousness that I bring to the house of the Lord, uh, God. Isn't it great that I'm not like that tax collector over there? Isn't it great that I'm not like them? What does God say? I'll take them over you any day of the week. Because at least they know what the relationship is. They're repentant. You're proud. See, God's not, in, God's not interested in that. Paul tells us that we think too highly of ourselves. That we should be valuing others greater than ourselves. 
Now, what this does, this brings me to the actual substance of today's message and what I personally believe are some of the most frightening verses in all of Scripture. The last part that we're going to deal with here is going to be two things that Jesus says that I personally believe are the most frightening things in Scripture. So the first part here is forgiveness is not an option. It's not an option for believers. So we're continuing on. So we just finished that, that, that section where Jesus tells us that he will leave the 99 to go after the one because we're all valuable. And then he talks to us about how to redeem those who are struggling here on earth. And now he's talking about something more profound that applies to all of it. <clears throat> so this begins with Peter, who I think just makes a career out of putting his foot in his mouth. But he gives us some great stuff. Peter came to him and asked, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? So righteous. No, not seven times, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. What? No, so let's break this down just, just, uh, well, um, hang on a second. First thing I want to note is that um, uh, this is right after Jesus talks about uh, if your brother sins against you, go to them, right? So this is part of the same process. Then we have Peter's question, then we have Jesus' answer, and the question is, how many times do I have to forgive people each day? I've got to forgive people each day? Like every day? Come on! This gives you the idea that Peter is looking for a cutoff point, right? Right? How many times does a righteous man such as myself need to deal with those in the lower planes of unrighteousness? How many times may they sin against me before I can pull out my mighty smoter and smote them with a mighty smote? Seven? Think of it. Forgiving someone seven times in one day. They should have been smote Around five. Um, it's very typical when you think about the human condition. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, <laughs> 70 times seven. What? You think about this. At what point in time do I have to not deal with unrighteousness anymore? You ever thought about that? Do you have that personal belief? I can deal with unrighteousness and sin to this point, but I will, Lord, I will not deal with it any further. Um, okay. Um, how often do we convince ourselves that our goodness, our righteousness, and our standing before God is all good no matter what's going on in our life? Because we have valued ourselves as the holy ones. In a conflict, in an issue, in an argument, in a, in, a, in a debate, in a situation, I am all obviously always the holy one in that. So I want to know how often that can happen before I can smote them. I got thinking about it, and this is one of the thoughts that came to my mind, that only a fool would stand before a holy God and think that they are more acceptable than others. Jesus' answer to Peter was 70 times 7, 490 times a day. If you sleep around 18 hours, that means you have to forgive just one person every two minutes throughout the day. Now, I'm willing to bet that you're going to encounter more than one person a day. 
Hmm? So if you run into someone over the course of the day, say two people, you need to forgive every 60 seconds. How many of you that seem unfair? (laughs) Now, what this means, Lord, what this means, what you're asking me to do is to never hold anything against anyone and to always allow myself to be beaten up in the name of, in the name of the gospel. Are you really asking me to do that, Lord? Let me say that again. Is God really asking you to forgive that often? No, he's not asking. He's telling you, you will. It's not a conversation. It's not a debate. I don't know if everyone has thought about this. Heaven is not a democracy. There is a king. He rules. He tells us the standards. We live by them. That's it. You don't get a vote. We wouldn't know how to vote anyway. How are we, why is it that we are required to give this freely? I'm glad you asked. Let's read this next section of scripture. Right after Jesus answers the question for Peter, (coughs) Jesus gives Peter this parable. Starting in verse 23, it says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with servants who had borrowed money from him. In the process, one of his debtors was brought in who owed him millions of dollars. Millions, not a million, millions. He couldn't pay, so his master ordered that he be sold, along with his wife, his children, and everything he owned, to pay the debt. But the man fell down before his master and begged him, please be patient with me and I will pay it. Then the master was filled with pity for him, and he released him and forgave his debt. Forgave the debt. Didn't just give him time to pay it. Forgave the debt. But when the man left the king, uh, the, uh, when the man left the king, he went to a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars. He grabbed him by the throat and demanded instant payment. His fellow servant fell down before him, begged for a little more time. Be patient with me and I will pay it, he pleaded. But his creditor wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested and put in prison until the debt could be paid in full. When some of the other servants saw this, they were very upset. They went to the king and told him everything that had happened. The king called a man, called in the man, <coughs> excuse me, he had forgiven and said, you evil servant. I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? Then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he paid the entire debt. Listen to this last line very carefully. That is what my heavenly father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. From your heart. Not lip service. From your heart. Now, when you read a parable like this, most of your Bibles are going to start off with this. The kingdom of heaven is like. That's probably how a lot of your Bibles started. Now, when you look at that particular passage, and when you're dealing with parables, what it really, uh, probably a better application uh, for it is this is what it looks like when God is at work. So a lot of times when Jesus is talking about these parables, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like. A, a, A more complete translation, how we're supposed to apply this, is that this is what it looks like when God is at work, and then you walk through the parable. Because there's a direct application to the character and nature of God and the truth of how it relates to us. In simple terms, this is something that you do not want to just blow off as a meaningful story. This is something you want to grab a hold of and apply to your life. 
Now, in essence, what we have here is our life being compared to a holy God and then our life being compared to any other human. Sin is a debt that we are not only incapable of repaying, most of us don't even understand the full value of what is owed. We don't have a concept of what's owed because we, we, we can't step into eternity. We don't know what heaven looks like. We don't know what forever, forever looks like. We don't know the cost, the real spiritual cost of our sin compared to the spiritual cost of heaven. We don't, we don't, know, we don't, have, a, we don't have a point of reference for those two things. We don't fully understand the value of what it is that we've been given. <clears throat> it's a debt that the human mind is simply incapable of fully comprehending, especially on this side of eternity. Now, you think about this. A few, no matter how good we are, no matter how righteous we might think we are, there's a, there's a wonderful comparison in the Bible to the best of human righteousness in the eyes of God. Check this out. We are all infected and impure with sin when we display our righteous deeds. They are nothing but filthy rags. Isaiah 64, 6. The best that we can offer in terms of righteousness, the Bible refers to as filthy rags. Does anyone know what a modern translation of what that should say is? Most of the time people say toilet paper. That's actually not accurate. Notice it said filthy. It's not just toilet paper. It's the toilet paper in the septic tank. The best we can offer in light of the righteousness of God is used toilet paper in comparison. That's awesome. Ew. We don't have a point of reference for the distance between us and God. Yet, when you consider how massive the debt of our sin is, how utterly incapable of paying that debt we are, God still stepped out of eternity in the body of Jesus, walked this earth, taught us the truth of his word, died on a cross as a substitution for that debt for us, to pay that debt for us. He did all of that, even though how utterly incapable we are, it's all good, of bridging that gap. He still did his part. That's what was done for the first servant in the parable. The first servant in the parable was forgiven a debt so astronomical they didn't have even a remote possibility of paying it back. What the second servant owed was so small in comparison that it's not even worth mentioning. Talking about millions of dollars, couple thousand. Think of all the people that guy could have forgiven and not even come close to the amount of debt that he owed. It wouldn't even have dipped into his bank account. He could have just said, you know what, you're good. Based on what I have received, I'm not going to ask anything of you. I've been given too much to require that from you. Yet the first servant, after being forgiven such an insurmountable debt, refused to give what he had received. 
And like all things, the master found out, and the first servant was called back to an account. Listen to what happened to him. What was forgiven was restored. Think about that. The debt that had already been forgiven was restored in full. Why? This man had been given all the grace and forgiveness that you could imagine, and he refused to give even a portion of that grace and forgiveness to other people. It was all about him. He was worth forgiving. He was worth what he had received. The other people weren't. That's what my heavenly father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. This does not say tell them you forgive them, then feel free to hold a grudge and talk about them behind their backs. True forgiveness does not have a voice after the act. True forgiveness is done. It's gone. We've moved past it. It's, it's not just water under the bridge. It's, it's not even visible anymore. It's water over the horizon line. <laughs> From the heart, true, internal, deep down forgiveness. And something that's really important to remember is this is not the first time Jesus has said this. We love to talk about the grace of God and the forgiveness of God, but we, we keep forgetting that there has to be forgiveness on our side too. In Matthew 6, 14 and 15, if you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. This is why I think these are the most terrifying verses in all of Scripture. Because we hold grudges, people. We got to learn how to forgive. It's my opinion that so many, of us, so many of us are stuck in a life where true peace is so hard to find. We're stuck there because we live in a life where we've refused to give to others what we are asking God to provide for us. Think about it. We get angry at our parents for not loving us as much as our siblings. We're angry at our boss for not valuing us like the other employee who has the job that you wanted. We're angry at our relatives for choosing the ungodly, immoral lifestyle. I can't believe that they're living like this. And we become angry at them. We're angry at those those people who vote the wrong way. They have the wrong opinions. They belong to the wrong political party. And they don't agree with everything that we think they should agree with. How dare they have an opinion of their own? Don't they know that my opinion is far more valuable than theirs is? And we live in this long-lasting almost sense of hatred. But because that person may be a good person in other ways, we, we blow it off. I want to give you a, a, a really simple, relevant, current application. We got a little issue going on in our local area, in the village. Some of you know this, some of you don't. A little fight going on. I'd rather not to keep the fire department. Now, I don't care which side of the issue you want, I really don't. That's not what I'm talking about. The issue is there, and I want to tap into that just for a minute because it's relevant for what we're doing. So here's a question. How long do you think the family feuds between people on opposite sides of that issue are going to last? One of the things that I found amazing when I... I'm a military kid. We came up here in 87 with the military. I never got to stay in any one place long enough to actually get to know people. Then you come up here and you find someone who's, you know, uh, uh, original grandparents who's like 150 or, you know, 8,000 different relatives. I'm thinking, you got to be kidding me. How does that even happen? But, like, everyone knows everyone. And up here there's, like, four last names and three spellings of each one of them because the family couldn't get along, so they changed the spellings. 
right? But one of the things that I found amazing when I came up here was how many people had opinions about a family based on a decision or an action that they don't even remember. Something happened so far back that caused a rift between groups of people. Really easy example is Carthage and West Carthage. What a waste of time that is. Which side of the bridge do you live on? Under it. With the sane people. What a giant pile of stupid. I hate you for something I don't even understand. But you have the wrong last name. You lived in the wrong area. Our football teams were, were, were rivals. And you won the championship when really we should have. So I'm going to hate you for the rest of your life. How idiotic is that in light of what we just learned about God? This issue, and part of what I'm, I'm uh, part of the reason why I'm talking about this is because we need to do something about this, folks. As Christians, we need to stop this. This is this is idiotic. This has already divided families. This has already divided families in the community, in the school. This has created divisions for no good reason. How dare you have an opinion of your own that doesn't line up with mine? Therefore, I will hate you and your family, and I will teach my kids to hate your last name. This is already happening. For what? For what? The issues today are not worth your forever. They are not worth your forever. I made a choice in this. You know what I'm going to do? Nothing. Because it doesn't matter. In the grand scheme of things, this is so insignificant, it's not even funny. I am not going to hate someone or cause hate to come on to someone or lie about someone in the community because they're on the opposite side of an issue as me. They're allowed to have their voice. I don't have to agree with them, but I do have to love them. And I am commanded by God. Can I say that again? I am commanded by God to forgive them from my heart. Which means when I see them in a store, I don't go around a different aisle. I'm talking to that person. Whatever. They may feel that way about me. I don't care. You see, in, in, in relationship issues and forgiveness issues, you know, how much, you know how much control I have? Right here. That's it. I can control this most of the time. Except when I'm around ice creams and really big cookies. <laughs> and I'm, then I'm 10. It's just the way it works. When we find ourselves in this kind of situation, we need to remember three things. We need to remember first that it is not God's will that even one of us would be lost. His desire is that all of us would be saved and our shepherd went to great lengths to open that door of opportunity for us. The second thing we need to remember is we, when we find ourselves in a place of disagreement, we have a path to follow. We have a path to follow. Matthew 18 gives us that path. 
Here's an idea. Stop talking about the people who disagree with you down at the town talk. I know, wild, right? Crazy. Go to the person face to face. Well, I don't want to. Yeah, there's a reason you don't want to. Because you may actually have to have an intelligent discussion with that person who disagrees with you. And you may actually find a rational area of common ground. How dare we? You may actually be able to minister Christ to them. But if this keeps you from doing that, then what you have done is you are withholding from them what God has given to you. That's a dangerous place to be, folks. A very dangerous place to be. The third thing we need to remember is we don't do this. We don't do these things because we are so righteous that the world needs our intense spiritual prowess. We do this because we are so thankful for what we have already received from God. We have received forgiveness on a level that we will, will not understand on this. We will not understand it on this side of eternity. We have received so much grace, so much forgiveness from God. How dare we, in our arrogance, refuse to forgive somebody else? We're just not that righteous, folks. I can't, I can't even begin to imagine what would come back to me. I want it to stay on the side of forgetfulness. I want to stay forgiven on those things. People don't like this conversation. God would never bring my sins back to me. Yes, he will. He said it twice. He's not kidding. We cannot refuse to give others what we have received for ourselves. We need to remember that God does not need us. We need him. We get to be part of his church. We are being allowed to help spread the gospel to the world. God did not pick you to be one of his people because you're so amazing. He just can't do it without you. We are allowed to be part of this process. We do this because we are aware of the intensity of the gift that we have already been given and we refuse to disrespect it with our own personal arrogance. Do you want the kind of peace in your life that can allow you to sleep through a hurricane? You need to be willing to not only do battle God's way for God's desired outcome, which is the redemption of those who are on the opposite side of the issue that you are, You also need to learn to forgive quickly and completely. And sometimes the person you need to learn to forgive quickly and completely is you.